Well, good morning again. Um, as you heard in my prayer, uh, I wanted to announce it, I had forgotten, but that uh, Zoe had got a, a very exciting message on uh, Saturday morning, or very early Saturday morning, that uh, someone, a friend of hers from back in Ivory Coast had located her sisters, who she hadn't seen in many, many years and didn't know if they were alive or not. And so she's just praising the Lord that that her sisters have been found, that they are alive. And uh, so we are just thrilled for her that God continues to answer these prayers and, and uh, that we can be a part of this story. It's really a special thing. So, yes, praise the Lord. And... And the exciting thing is to see, you know, how Lord, the Lord would continue to use us as, uh, as we can be a part of this story as it unfolds. Well, today we are continuing in our series on Exodus, The Way Out. And in part four, uh, we're going to look at God's unexpected call. We saw a brief clip of it this morning in the children's video, and we're going to dive into this a little bit more this morning. So would you bow with me once more as we ask the Lord's blessing on his word? Father, thank you that your word is alive and active. Thank you that your holy fire, your spirit, burns in all of your children. And that, Lord, you would have your word fanned into flame. And so I pray that you would do just that this morning. I pray that you would begin in me, and that, Lord, my physical weakness, would you strengthen me by your spirit. Speak through me, Lord, and help me to speak clearly the words that you've laid on my heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we left off in part three with Moses, the former Egyptian prince, now a fugitive murderer murderer on the run to Midian. Now, of course, in his attempt to protect the enslaved Israelites by killing the Egyptian taskmaster, Moses had in fact acted in his own strength, raced ahead of God, and as a result failed miserably. So now rejected by the Hebrews and hunted by Pharaoh, Moses has resigned himself to living out the twilight years of his life, in the peace and anonymity of being a shepherd in the desert. He's accepted that this is his lot, and he is not expecting in any way that God has further use for him in his service. But little did Moses know that God wasn't done with him yet. In fact, God was just getting started with Moses, because according to God's timetable, things were, were unfolding right on schedule. We look way back to Genesis chapter 15 and verses 12 to 16. And there we read, As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Now, 400 years is a long time by any measure, by anyone's standard. But 400 years of forced labor and having murderous tyrants throw your baby boys into the Nile River must have seemed longer still. Four centuries of enslavement. By comparison... Consider that this year, on July the 1st, the nation of Canada will be celebrating its 150th anniversary since Confederation in 1867. Who remembers that? Anyone? Yeah, you were here in 1867? Okay, right on. You know, to me, 1867 seems like ancient history, you know, 150 years ago. 
But by comparison, that's not even half of the time that the Israelites spent as slaves in Egypt. So this is, this is a vast period of time, four centuries. And so by the time that Moses was born, multiple generations of Abraham's descendants had been born as Pharaoh's slaves and died as Pharaoh's slaves. It was all they knew. It was who they were. Of course, none of this came as a surprise to God, for as we just read, he had already foretold this to Abram many years earlier, that in his divine providence, he had foreseen and foretold their enslavement in Egypt. But of course, to mortal man whose lifespan is 70 years or 80 if he has the strength, a plan that takes so long to unfold, it seems as though God is moving at less than a snail's pace, if moving at all. But here we must stop and acknowledge that God is God and we are not. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God declares, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God's mighty plans span the ages until finally, in the fullness of time, they can unfold at such breathtaking speed and in such unexpected in such powerful ways that we can scarcely believe they're happening. So it was in the days of Noah, when for 120 years, Noah and his sons built the boat. And for 120 years, Noah preached the message, a flood is coming, repent. And for 120 years, the people laughed and mocked and did not heed Noah's warning until in a single day, the flood came. And in the span of 40 days, the flood was so great, even the highest mountains of the earth were covered. 120 years, it seemed like the warnings were for nothing. God wasn't moving, and then suddenly, just like that, it unfolds at a breathtaking speed. So it was at the first coming of Christ, when after 400 years of silence from the time of the last prophets, finally in one night, he came in the most unexpected way, almost unnoticed, And if it had not been for an angelic choir to announce it to some shepherds, there would have been no welcoming committee for the Savior of the world. So it will be at the second coming of Christ, when after centuries upon centuries of men asking, what is taking him so long? Why hasn't he returned yet? The Bible says that he will appear in the twinkling of an eye, suddenly, unexpectedly. And so it was, when the children of Israel had waited for 400 long years for God to provide for them a way out. And all the while, things just kept getting worse. Let's return to the text in Exodus chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. And there we read, as was read earlier, in verse 23 to 25, it tells us, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now someone might read this passage and ask the question, why did it take God so long to act on behalf of his people? What took so long? Was it only... In the end that he was concerned about them, hadn't he noticed them earlier? But I think the better question is, 
Why did it take the people of God so long before they finally cried out to him? What took them so long to call out to their creator? Now remember, at first, things in Egypt were pretty good. Because of Joseph's legacy, the the pharaohs thought of the people fondly. In the early years, things weren't so bad. They had some freedom. They had some land, and they were a part of the landscape. But, of course, as the memory of Joseph faded and things grew progressively worse, the people did not immediately begin to cry out to the Lord. It was only once things had hit absolute rock bottom after four centuries that finally, utterly helpless and hopeless, they as one voice, as one people, cry out to God for deliverance. And he hears them, he is concerned about them, and he moves on their behalf. And you just have to ask the question, could it be that was all God was waiting for? Was for his people to cry out to him? Was that all that he was waiting for? That his chosen people would simply admit that they needed him and ask for his help? Well, I believe it's not only possible, but probable. It was the Lord Jesus who said, you have not because you ask not. But aren't we the same way so often? When things are good, as they were for the Israelites in Egypt in the early years, when things are good, we say, I've got this. I'm, I'm right in control of things. I've got this. When things get a little bit harder, then we say, well, I can get through this. You know, I'll, I'll just buckle down and I'll get through this. But it's only when things finally hit rock bottom do we cry out, I can't do this. God, please help me. And as when Israel finally cried out, we too can rest assured that when we do that, individually and collectively, God hears, God cares, and God has already been making preparations to come to our aid, even if we have not yet seen them. So now, Israel, having cried out to God, all that remains is for them to wait for God to send them their man, their leader, Moses. But there was just one last catch for this to all unfold. That man needed to be convinced and persuaded that he was, in fact, God's man for the job. Now, I'm quite sure that Moses' day on that fateful day started out like many that had gone before it. He woke up in the morning, he washed his face, he had his breakfast, he counted his sheep, and then he was off in search of green pastures. Just another day at the office. There was no flashing neon sign that said, God will speak to you today. No, it was just another day to get through. Don't we do the same thing? You know, we wake up in the morning. We might say a quick prayer, do a quick devotion, or whatever our routine happens to be. Check the weather, check the news, check Facebook, of course. Can't forget that. (laughs) No one? Oh, there's a few people laughing. Well, of course, whatever our routine is, then we put on our shoes, we lace up our boots, we get in the car and we drive off to work or to the coffee shop or whatever your routine is. And we do all of these things almost on autopilot, little considering the fact, the possibility that each and every day presents of encountering God in an unexpected way. And so there for Moses, in the midst of a routine, ordinary day on the backside of the wilderness, tending his sheep, something completely unexpected grabs Moses' attention in the form of a burning bush. Exodus 3, 
In verses 2 to 3, we read, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now, of course, it wasn't the sight of fire that caught Moses' attention. He'd seen plenty of bushfires before, I'm sure. No, it was the fact that he could see the flames, he could see that the bush was burning, but that the bush itself was unconsumed. It wasn't burning up, it wasn't folding in on itself, as every fire should do eventually. And so with his curiosity piqued, Moses went to investigate what made this bush so special. And no sooner has Moses turned towards this burning bush and headed in its direction, that his ordinary ho-hum routine day was interrupted in the most unexpected of ways. The bush called his name. Now, he wasn't expecting that. I'm sure in that split second, Moses is thinking, someone's playing a prank on me. Like, who could be out here? Or maybe I'm still dreaming. This is just some crazy thing going on. A bush calling his name after it's not burning up is nothing he'd ever experienced before. Has anyone else experienced this before? I haven't. I'm pretty sure he's the only man in the history of the world who ever experienced this happening. We're so familiar with this story, we forget how bizarre this incident is. A bush burning not being consumed, turning towards it, and it calls your name. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. (laughs) Now it's vital that we understand something here. The fire did not originate with the bush. This was not a natural fire. This wasn't the fire triangle of heat, fuel, and oxygen coming together for combustion. No, this was God's divine presence. Descended from heaven to earth, made physically manifest in the form of fire. Inhabiting a perfectly ordinary bush to talk with Moses in the most unexpected of ways. Now by definition... Any place that God's divine presence dwells is his temple. So consider that for this moment, God's holy temple was a thorn bush. So before there was the Ark of the Covenant, or the tabernacle, or the temple, or the Holy of Holies, there was the thorn bush. So it begs the question why a humble thorn bush? Why would he choose this? to be the means with which he would speak to Moses. Well, I guess on a practical level, it's what was available in the wilderness landscape. But I believe that there was an even deeper reason that God chose a humble thorn bush with which to speak to Moses. I believe that God was showing Moses that just as he could indwell a humble thorn bush and not consume it, but to actually use it as his mouthpiece, so too God could indwell a humbled Moses with his divine fire. And not only would Moses not be consumed, but that he too would be used as God's mouthpiece to speak first to the children of Israel and then to Pharaoh to let his people go. Of course, in this moment, all of this is lost on Moses. 
Because after God reveals his holy name and his master plan for the deliverance of Israel to Moses, one would think that Moses' immediate response would have simply been nothing but, yes, sir, it's about time, let's get going. Let's do this. I've been waiting my whole life to see my people delivered. But how does Moses respond? (laughs) Not like that, does he? He takes a little bit more persuasion, a little bit of convincing. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Have you ever said that? Have you ever said that to God? Has God ever called you to do something and you felt completely unqualified, overwhelmed, and just inadequate for the job? Well, Moses felt so overwhelmed that over the next few chapters, he gives God, pardon me, ten objections, ten reasons as to why he was the wrong man for the job. You see, Moses was focusing on the thorn bush when he should have been focusing on the fire. You see, Moses was looking at himself, remembering the last time that he had tried to deliver the people and failed miserably. So in his mind, he's thinking, what will be any different this time? But here's the difference. Verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. There's the difference. Five words that change everything. Five words that change the course of history. When God says to someone, I will be with you, it changes everything. Have you ever heard God whisper those words to you, those five simple words? What did that do to you? What did that do for you? What is it still doing for you today if God has promised to you that he will be with you? What did it change for Moses? Well, for Moses, he still had more, more excuses, more reasons after this. But once he finally accepted that God would be going with him, Moses went ahead with the mission that God had called him to. And of course, we know that God used Moses, unlike any other man in history, to do incredible, awe-inspiring, powerful, and mighty works of God. And so when God is calling your name, Don't focus on the thorn bush. Don't focus on yourself, what you're capable of, or your own weaknesses or failures from the past. Focus on the fire. Because the Lord's desire is to do far more than simply indwell in bushes or tabernacles or temples. The Father did not send his Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to live in man-made structures for his dwelling place. No, God sent his Son so that we would be his temple, that we would be his dwelling place, that his holy fire would burn in us. Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This is said to Christians. This is the church. You are God's temple. 
for the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Now, like Moses, you might look at yourself and see nothing but a prickly old thorn bush. But let me tell you that if you have confessed your sins, you have placed your trust trust in the finished, completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ done on your behalf, and you have had your heart regenerated by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, then God looks at you and he says, you are my dwelling place. You are my temple. You are holy. You are set apart. You are inhabited by my divine fire. As the tongues of fire descended on the day of Pentecost, so I burn within you, and I will use your life to fulfill my will for my glory. And my friends, like Moses, we need to stop saying to God, Who am I? And start looking at and listening to the one who declared to him that day, I am who I am. And the one who promised to him that day, I will be with you. And when the I am says, I will be with you, he will. He doesn't lie. He doesn't give false assurances. When God said to Moses, I will be with you, he meant every last word of it. And more than Moses could have ever imagined, God would be with him. And here's the most incredible part. When Moses finally yielded to the unexpected call of God, we see the extraordinary. And so too, when we yield to the unexpected call of God in our lives, there is no limit to what he might do through us. For the good of mankind and for the eternal glory of God, for there will be more saints in glory to worship and magnify his name for our obedience. That's what this is really all about. The end game is that God will be glorified, that there will be more children in heaven to eternally glorify his name forever and ever. And so the more obedient and yielded we are in this life, the more that will be added to the saints in glory who will sing God's praises forever and ever and ever. When the I am says, I will be with you, what do we have left to fear? There's only one response left. And that is to step forward in faith and obedience and then see what God will do. In the late 1700s, English traders raided the African West Coast, capturing between 35,000 and 50,000 Africans every single year. They would then shackle and ship them like cattle across the Atlantic, selling them into a life of slavery. It was a profitable business that many powerful people had become entirely dependent upon. One publicist for the West Indies trade route wrote this. The impossibility of doing without slaves in the West Indies will always prevent this traffic from ever being stopped. By the late 1700s, the economics of slavery were so entrenched that only a handful of people thought anything could ever be done about it. And that handful of people included a young English statesman named William Wilberforce. That had not always been the case, however. Born into a wealthy family, William never took his studies seriously, and even once he took an interest in politics and was eventually elected to Parliament, he still took nothing seriously. He later said of himself, The first years in Parliament, I did nothing. Nothing to any purpose. My only distinction was my darling object, that I would be promoted. But soon he began to sense that something was missing in his life. And he began to reflect deeply on what that could be. 
This led to a period of intense sorrow and depression. And he later wrote, I am sure that no human creature could suffer more than I did for some months. And it was there in this personal wilderness of sorrow that God met him. And God called him. And finally, on Easter Sunday morning of 1786, becoming fully persuaded that Jesus' victory over sin and death had been for him, William Wilberforce describes that suddenly as the dawn lifts in the morning, the gloom lifted from his soul and it swelled with joy and thanksgiving. He sang the songs of the saints that day with a glad heart. He said that was the day that he had been reborn. And following this experience, William considered leaving politics altogether to go into pastoral ministry. But then he met a pastor named John Newton, who encouraged him to stay in Parliament and to serve God where he was. Newton himself, a former captain of a slave ship, was deeply convicted of his great sin and the sin that he had been a part of in enslaving his fellow man. William was deeply affected by Newton and others and soon began to sense God calling him to use his political position to work towards abolishing the slave trade. Wilberforce later wrote, So enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for its abolition. Let the consequences be what they would, I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had affected its abolition entirely. But what could he, as one man, do against an entire industry of the slave trade? An industry that had become so deeply entrenched in the economic fabric and political might of the British Empire, who could stand against it as one man? Politically, he was doomed to fail before he even got started. And so it proved true. Not only was his first bill presented to Parliament in 1789 quickly shot down and laughed at, but every subsequent bill introduced in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805 were one by one snuffed out. And as failure upon failure upon failure piled up, so did the personal opposition against William. His enemies publicly vilified him and spoke of the damnable doctrine of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. The opposition became so fierce, one friend feared that one day he would read about Wilberforce's being broiled by Indian planters, barbecued by African merchants, and eaten by Guinea captains. But still, in spite of threat to his own person and life, William Wilberforce persisted, until finally on his tenth attempt... The Slave Trade Act of 1807 was approved by British Parliament, effectively ending the slave trade in the entire British Empire. Now maybe God's plan for you might not be so large as to free an entire nation from slavery like Moses, or to ban the modern slave trade like William Wilberforce. But let me tell you that no act, no matter how small it might seem at the time, no act, when done in God's will, done in God's way, and done most importantly in God's power, is unimportant in God's kingdom. And perhaps God will use you to lead the personal exodus of a family that you know, maybe some neighbors of yours, maybe a family member, that 
God will use you to be the Moses to lead the personal exodus of that family out of slavery to sin and into the promised land of God's grace and salvation. Maybe God will use us to yet free more refugees from a life of oppression and to settle them in our land of opportunity and freedom. Maybe God will yet use the gathered church of Killarney to be the hands and feet of a great revival in western Manitoba. So may we cry out to him. May we focus not on the thorn bush, but on the fire. And then simply say, Yes, Lord. Whatever you would have me do, whatever you would have me say, I am your man. I am your woman. I am your child. Use me in whatever way you choose. Amen. Father in heaven, this is our prayer to you. It is a prayer of submission. Father, where, like Moses, we have made excuses, where we have listed all of the reasons why you've asked or chosen the wrong person for the job, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. And at this moment, we choose to stop making excuses, to stop giving all of the reasons why you've got just the wrong person, And why so-and-so would be so much more qualified, we would stop looking at the thorn bush and look at you, the eternal fire, the great and glorious God who can use the most humble things of the world to glorify yourself. And so, Lord, today we say, whatever you would have me do, individually, I say, yes, Lord. And Lord, we collectively as your church say, Lord, whatever you would have Clarny Mennonite Church do, in advance, not knowing what it might be, we say, yes, Lord, use us for your glory, for your purposes, that many more could come to know you as personal Lord and Savior, and so that for all of eternity and all of glory, there will be many more who will sing your praises and magnify your name, for you are good your mercy and your grace and your love endure forever. And so, Father, we entrust ourselves to you and to your mission from this breath until our last breath. In Jesus' name, amen.